Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Grant Bidet, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Grant Bidet finds writing one of the most exciting things one could do and keeps doing it. In addition to Orphans of Empire, which is the focus of this episode, Grant is the author of the novels Dragonflies, White Lung, Sacks of Teeth, Rootbound, The Delusionists, and Atomic Road. He's also written a memoir titled Stranger on a Strange Land and a travel memoir, Golden Goa. Before we dug into talking about Orphans of Empire, I asked Grant if he could be a character in any novel who he would be, and this is what he said. There's so many. I, you know, there's um, there's uh, a woman in, Matt, in I can't remember her name, she's in the novel The Master and Margarita by uh, Bulgakov, which is one of my favorite books. I should remember her name. Satan befriends her, and he flies her out Across, out of Moscow and out into the the into the landscape at, under, at night under the stars and she visits very strange goings on on this riverbank and I thought that and and then she ends up coming back and uh, is uh, quite charmed by Satan and um, he's quite fond of her they have a very father-daughter sort of relationship thought to be her would you know to have to have Taking that ride under the stars would have been kind of fun. Orphans of Empire is a finalist for the 2021 Roger Haig Brown Regional Prize, and Grant starts this episode with a reading from the novel. There's the book has three perspectives, one of which is um, Colonel uh, Richard Moody, uh, who was a uh, head of the Royal Engineers, came and mapped out the um, the uh, the the lower mainland, especially the gold fields and the Caribou, the Fraser Gold Rush. And also um, a woman by the name of Frizzady who was from Hawaii and um, a young guy named Henry Fannon who is a very, very working class fellow who came out at an orphan who en- ended up in, on the coast and uh, becoming a, um, a taxidermist. So I thought I'd read with uh, the start of uh, Henry Fannon's life in, in London. And it starts in 1881. When Henry Fannon was five years old, he collected beetles and kept them in jars. This practice troubled his father, who would squint at them and then at his son, as if he were not his son at all, but an imposter who merited a drubbing. Butterflies and honeybees aside, bugs were vermin, and vermin was filth, and filth should be killed, not collected. Still, Bob Fannin recognized the boy's spirit of inquiry, a smart lad, a boy with an interest in the world, and therefore did not criticize him. Further, he defended him against any insult, for to mock his son was to mock him, and no lout dare steal or stomp Fannin Jr.'s bugs for fear of Fannin Sr. beating him. Fannin Sr. had accomplished precious little in his life, but no one could deny that he had raised beating to an art. His beatings exhibited distinctive features. Usually they opened with a shout, Oi! And if that failed, then a short punch to the forehead. 
or no shout at all, merely the heel of his hand thrust upward into the underside of the offender's jaw. Then again, it might commence with a hammer-like fist brought down on top of the skull, as if it were not the head of a man, but of a spike to be driven into a plank. All were effective entrances. Certainly they captured attention. Once the offender was down, Bob Fannin brought his feet into play and the proceedings took a decidedly musical turn, his footwork echoing the drums of a military march, accompanied by the woodwind groanings and pleadings of the man on the ground. There was admirable rhythm to his blows, two punches followed by two kicks and then a quickening of the tempo, a series of left-right-lefts, the fists and feet dancing a jig after which he would slow the pace with more base work of the boots. Bob Fannin was not a big man, five foot five and ten stone, but he was fierce and he was thorough, dotting his eyes and crossing his T's, as it were, even if he was illiterate. It all culminated with him hurling himself straight up into the air, arms aloft, crying out his triumph, this avatar of correction, this reclaimer of the errant to the straight and narrow, and driving his knees down upon the spine of the offender who is very unlikely to ever offend again. In contrast, young Henry took after his mother who had been carried off by a fever. Henry was retiring though industrious, curious about all things great and small, while his father feared the great and dismissed the fall, the small. For the age of one to three, Henry was minded by an old woman called Mrs. Plate. When she died, Henry's father, wishing to save money, took the boy along with him to work at the dock where he pounded oakum into the hulls of ships. He tied the boy to a leash two fathoms long so as to give him a measure of freedom, but keep him in sight. This is how young Henry discovered the world of insects, studying them with an innate sense of system of which Linnaeus would have been proud. Noting means of locomotion, leg count, wing position, length of antennae, and whether they did or did not sting or stink. When he outgrew the leash, he was allowed to wander under his own recognizance, exploring the Thames with its gulls and rats, its dogs, cats, and weasels, its gangs, gropers, and perverts, dossers, opportunists, mauls, thugs, and flimflammers. On the muddy riverbank, he saw corpses bloated and corpses dismembered, clothed and naked, shaved bald where they had ought not to be, it was a rich, if erratic, upbringing. He saw his first monkey on a ship returned from Guinea, beheld a python from India and a sloth from Brazil, as well as stacks of bull hides from California and beaver pelts from Canada. Bulls and beavers were creatures his father could appreciate, not the insects his son collected. He demanded to know what good they were. Now the boy loved his old dad, for he knew things, such as how to tie a double carrick bend and how to make rum. So how could he ask such a question? For studying, he said. I'll get you a dog. You can study it. A few days later, his father pulled a pup from his coat. It was black and white and, though blind in one eye, was of an engaging personality. Take care of it. Henry did his best, but it was a runt and sickly and died. He put the corpse in rum, for he'd overheard men on the dock talk of bodies carried home all the way from Australia preserved in rum and envisioned men and women floating inside casks like plums and syrup, sad but welcome gifts to their waiting families. So he put the dog in his father's rum bucket, where it floated peacefully in the amber liquid.
So as I was reading the book, I uh, flipped to the acknowledgments in the back, and you mentioned your relationship with New Brighton, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to that place. I used to live in the East End for many, many years, and uh, I'd often walk past there and, and through the park and uh, around the, uh, the the waterfront, and, um, and would occasionally swim there because there was a pool. And also when I later on got involved in uh, going to the horse races, when you were sitting on the sands, you'd look straight over towards the park. And um, it was kind of inevitable that I would wonder about its past. The um, idea of doing a book on New Brighton, centered on New Brighton, was actually given to me by Rolf Moore of New Star Books, who saw it as a non-fiction work and so I did some research on it and could never really come up with all that much which I thought was very saddening and also typically Canadian in terms of how we have overlooked or underrated our own history yeah if this had been the states there would have been multi-volumes histories and and probably a feature movie or two about the park because it was the it predated Gastown. It was the first railway station, the first telegraph, the, the first ferry terminal, um, post office. There was a hotel. There was a museum. There was even a roller skating rink there in the 1880s. And yet virtually nobody knows about this. So it was a fascinating discovery. But as I say, there was so little information that I could find that I and, and I didn't want to lose or uh, let go of the project because it was it was so big in my mind after having you know a, a taste of it it was all that much more intriguing that I felt uh, you know I, I had to dig deeper and so turned you know took the liberties of going into fiction. I wanted to ask you about the research for the book because it's obvious in reading it that you did so much research and and I was curious what that research looked like. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about those roadblocks that you did run into as you were researching the book. Well, the, the um, there's many reference. There's there's a lot of references, but that don't go very deep. Like for instance, um, regarding um, George Black, the uh, the Laird of Hastings, the guy who had the roller skating rink and the hotel. Uh, he was a really interesting guy who was uh, into horse racing up and down. I guess what's now Hastings Street or Powell Street. You had ran a butcher shop later in Gastown and the hotel uh, had a pet bear. So you, you get these glancing references to a guy like him. He had glancing reference to Henry Fannin who had the uh, taxidermy uh, museum. You get the mention, there's more on um, on um, Richard Clement Moody, of course, because he's more of, yeah, of the uh, the official history, being British and being a, a member, uh, the, the head of the Royal Engineers, and having been sent out on of official work, so to speak. But even him, you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's curious when you read the histories of the, especially dated histories. They tend to be a little um, circumspect and and uh, and very careful about avoiding or getting into certain details that might be the ones that are most tasty. And um, so there was a lot of very superficial stuff that was ever more intriguing because of that. And basically almost kind of beckoned you to start, you know, taking imaginative fictional liberties. 
you mentioned Richard Moody and you uh, read from Henry's section in your reading. How did you land on those three characters as the entry points for this story? Well, they, they in my research, um, Moody, Fannin, and um, I guess most of all, the most uh, endearing character is for Zadie, the woman, the Hawaiian, young Hawaiian woman who ends up running a hotel there, the hotel that eventually uh, George Black bought from her and uh, her partner. They just seem the most dramatically compelling trio of them. And they are also, uh, they are the, um, the dominant figures in, in the, the what, whatever history there is extant. They kind of uh, also, they encompass or bookmark um, New Brighton's uh, very brief existence from the mid 1860s to about the mid 1880s after which New Brighton uh, is utterly eclipsed by Gastown. The, uh, the railway stations moved, in, moved uh, further west and uh, all development focuses uh, on what is now Gastown and, be, and becomes Vancouver. And so within a decade or so, New Brighton just absolutely fades into the nothing. So um, Moody at one end and Fannin at the other tend to bookend the uh, brief uh, moment in the sun. I mean, all three characters were so interesting for their own reasons. But as you, you mentioned, for Zadie kind of, I don't know what it is about her, but she stand, she really stands out. And she's such an interesting character because, first of all, she was a woman on the frontier and those stories we don't often hear. And she was also a woman of color on the frontier, uh, which was fascinating to me as well. And I would imagine those two things, being a woman and a woman of color, would have had their own challenges in finding history. Was she someone who was well documented as you were doing research? No, not at all. In fact, I never even got, never even heard her last name. Yeah, she was always just a one name person. As in the book, as you know, she meets up with Maxie Michaud, who is, I guess, the other, the fourth character. On for Zadie's initiative, they buy the hotel and they make an incredible success of it. And then Maxie just very abruptly at the height of their of their success goes back east and reappears a couple of months later with a another wife because he and Frizzadi had never actually been married. So he's come back. He's married to a white French Canadian woman, and for and um, I think that to me was the most compelling dramatic incident and all the research I did and I just could not leave that alone it was just like crying out to be um, delved into and after you know um, Maxie betrays her in this absolutely just callous fashion Frizzetti vanishes you know she's just never heard from again Maxie lives on a couple more years dies and um, the other characters carry on in their way but for me the um, Frizzetti and Maxie story was just so uh, incredibly um, moving that I, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't stay away from it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there were characters who, um, like Richard Moody, and of course, like Begbie and Douglas, who appear in the book as well. Those characters are are so well documented to a certain extent, as you said, the the juicy details get left out of history, but you kind of round out the characters and give them a new dimension. But are there challenges in, in doing that when you are dealing with these people that we know, like Begbie, the hanging judge? Well, yeah, I, you mean in terms of where you take your liberties and, and depart from so-called um, real history? Sure. But I suppose uh, it's, it's called a novel for one thing. So 
you know, reader beware. I'm not sure what that is in Latin, you know, but uh, maybe that's what should be under under in the front page of the book, you know. Um, and and you know, to some extent, I I, I mentioned that when in my own epigraph, which is from Thomas Pynchon's book Mason Dixon, and I'll read it to you. Facts are but the playthings of lawyers, tops and hoops, forever a spin. Alas, the historian may indulge no such idle rotating. So, I mean, it's, it's playful. It's a kind of reversal of the, of the reality of it, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, there's a higher, it's, tr you know, there, there's a, I think it's a truer, um, a, a truer history you get to via the imagination, as long as I think you are being uh, somewhat faithful to the spirit of the characters and, and to the, and to the muse, I suppose. I don't, I don't think anywhere that I run, whereas I, I have taken liberties and I think anyone does who is writing something like, like historical fiction otherwise it'd be pretty dull stuff you know the human imagination can go places that um you know are sometimes worth following up and hopefully this one is something that came up for me while i was reading the book was just how how precarious things were in this new colony in New Brighton and on the frontier. And there was all these concerns of invasion from the U.S. And of course, like the actual worry of where to build uh, cities and settlements and the work that it took to build those settlements was so unstable. I was curious if you learned anything new in or, or had a new understanding of the settlement of B.C. and the coast through writing the book and through doing your research. Well, certainly a more more of a feel for the texture of existence. The more you you know, as I alluded to before, if you you know if you're trying to inhabit a character and and um, walk in step with that character and and um, go with them, as it were, you start to try and experience the world from their perspective. You know, and you know what did the air feel like? What were they smelling? What were the smells on the streets? What were they hearing on a given day in Newsminster? You know, in eighteen in eighteen seventy. You know, what what was the soundscape? You know, what was you know the ships on the river? The uh, the, the the sounds of the horses going by. The uh, um, the sort sort of things that were you actually saw when you walked along Columbia Street. And I think that it's a becomes a very visceral. Um, discovery if you're really trying to inhabit the character and the time and I suppose that is that more than oh this occurred at a certain date and they did this at a certain date it's more the texture of existence you, you start to um, discover even if, even though you are in you know the guiding hand in creating it so it was interesting in in reading the three points of view and just and the people they interact with of course was the real buy-in that people had for this idea of the this new colony and and in acting as in the machine of it and even to the extent that you know the families really came with them and and mary and the kids were right there with with richard the whole time and and but there still seemed to be a sense of hopefulness and anticipation despite all the hardship was that something that came across in the research or was that just a sense that you had about what was going on at the time? No, I think you have to be, you had, you really had to be exceedingly desperate or extremely optimistic to, you know, make the move out to the, as, as far as is required. And, you know, Moody went around the horn and uh, Maxie walked across. 
I think it's a, a comma. It's a strange combination that reflects the, na the diverse nature of the of the human psyche. Is that you could go through the months of travel to come to some place. You either had to be th you really have stars in your eyes and thinking I've, there's gold on the coast and I'm going to get it and I'm going to rise above my station. Or things are so lousy where I am. I you know I'm I'm just going adrift and I'll end up there. It's there's I think there's what. There's a, you, you start to discover or, or, or get a sense of just how people were playing for and maybe maybe playing for keeps a little bit more than we are now. Death and, and, and um, obstructions and the ordeal of travel were just so enormous so that that you would be compelled to travel so many thousands of miles uh, is a true measure of, like I say, desperation and or optimism. Yeah, and even like there was a a part um I'm probably you know spoiling things for readers but at the point where where Mary they have a stillbirth and I think Richard says something to the effect like he seemed so surprised that in this day in that day and age that would still happen and I thought it just really stood out to me as you know I think we still have those thoughts and here we are hundreds of years later and we still think we've progressed so far but we're still in the same, how is this still happening? And I just thought that was an interesting kind of moment that you added in there. Yeah. I mean, I find it uh, really quite sobering to think of people who long dead, who are all just as intense and reflective as anyone alive today. Yeah, it really puts things in perspective for me. And I think that's why I, I've become more interested in history in general and, and historical fiction in particular because of that the you know the the experience of looking at an old photograph into the faces and um i really find it incredibly moving i mean i, I was looking at an article on the in the tai just a couple of days ago and it was about two books on the komagatamaru and there's a picture of all these guys on this deck of this ship and you're looking at every fit and you can open you can expand the picture on the computer screen and look at every face there every face so distinct so individual and you know this guy had a family and a past and and he had ideas to the future and what he was doing and and relationships with the people on the boat and uh things he liked and maybe good luck things or things he'd carried with them and left behind and just when you start to really look at the pictures and, and reflect on any item, I guess, or face, it's, um, I think it really, it makes you less inclined to dismiss people, you know, whether whether contemporary or, or, or whatever, of just, oh, well, that guy's just a bum, who cares? You know, you tend to think everyone's got this inner world much bigger than they let on, and you've got to acknowledge that. And I find that with um, history in general, and I say the, the writing of, fiction about the past enhances that for me and i think it's a good thing for me i i think that that really came across to you in the book because like i said you know we i growing up on the coast i've heard of Bagby. I remember doing a walking tour of Victoria when I was a kid and they took us to where he, you know, hung everyone in downtown Victoria. So his his story was well known, but it really is a, a, a flattened um, story of a person that we get through, you know, a picture or even often they were communicating in journal entries and letters and we don't get all the details. And that's where I find it exciting to read historical fiction because you get to ask those questions and people tend to have a bit more complexity than maybe we get in the history books. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a certain assumptions or attitudes you, you, you carry with you when you pick up a novel about, you know, and say a, a certain type of novel versus, you know, something it's not necessarily going to be big on plot, but it might be more on atmosphere and character that you are slowed down and you're perhaps a bit more open to, let's just see, let's just take a look in, in this, out this window here and, or, or into this window, which maybe you're not inclined to do when you're reading a history book or a magazine article. There's a bit more, just give me the goods and move on. Thanks so much to Grant for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about the shortlisted authors, as well as how to register to attend our upcoming gala and viewing party. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with Liz Levine, whose book, Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But the End, is a finalist for the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.